I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jeremy Hunt delivered a £55 billion fiscal squeeze this week as the Chancellor announced Britain was facing its steepest fall in living standards in over 70 years. Anyone who says there are easy answers is not being straight with the British people. Some, some, argue, some argue for spending cuts, but that would not be compatible with high-quality public services. Others say savings should be found by increasing taxes, but Conservatives know that high-tax economies damage enterprise and erode freedom. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's Autumn Statement special, we'll be dissecting Jeremy Hunt's de facto first budget, the dire state of growth and the public finances, the stealth tax rises, where spending will be chopped, where some extra cash is going, and the prospect of high inflation for some time. The FT's top gurus will take you through it all, political editor George Parker and economics editor Chris Giles. And later, we'll be asking what this means for the Labour Party. Has Jeremy Hunt shot their fox with a statement that includes a big windfall tax and puts the highest burden on the richest in society? We'll be exploring their alternative with chief political correspondent Jim Picard and special guest Karis Roberts, executive director of the progressive IPPR think tank. Thank you all for joining. This week's autumn statement has been trailed for so many weeks that none of the announcements on Thursday came as a huge shock. But Jeremy Hunt did set out a dire state of the British economy. Low growth, high inflation and little prospect of any sunlit uplands or a plan to get there. Instead, it was all thin gruel. Some pain today, much more pain tomorrow, with only a hope that something might turn up to improve the situation. The best the Chancellor could claim that it was being done in a way that would put the burden on the richest in society, and he said it was being done in a compassionate way. Announcing the statement in the House of Commons, Hunt confirmed that the UK was now in recession. The OBR forecast the UK's inflation rate to be 9.1% this year, and 7.4% next year. They confirm that our actions today help inflation to fall sharply from the middle of next year. They also judge that the UK, like other countries, is now in recession. Overall this year, the economy is still forecast to grow by 4.2%. GDP then falls in 2023 by 1.4%, before rising by 1.3%, 2.6% and 2.7%. Chris Giles, welcome back to the podcast. Give us your overview of the autumn statement. It broadly seems to have landed pretty much where we thought it was going to. I mean, there's been so many leaks and trails and kites being flown. Some of the more outlandish ideas, like the return of the 50p top rate of tax, would not come to pass. But most of the core stuff and this, that £55 billion fiscal black hole was where you've been reporting it for weeks. We need to stand back a little bit and say, just have a look at what the economic forecasts 
look like? What does it tell us about Britain at the moment? And really, there's very little good news there at all. The Office for Budget Responsibility's forecasts were slightly more optimistic than the Bank of England's really dire ones, but really not very much at all. So that 4.2% growth this year, all of that happened in 2021. That isn't happening in 2022. The economy is now sliding into recession. It's contracting. It's going to contract all the way through 2023, according to both the Bank of England and the Office for Budget Responsibility. That is going to be compounded. So what the real problem is, is that... The UK's just got poorer. We spend a lot of money on energy, particularly gas, and we have to do that because we have to heat our homes and generate electricity. That cost of gas has gone up eight times more expensive now than it was in normal times. This is happening to some extent across Europe as a whole. If that's the case, you are poorer, you've got less money to spend on other things, and that is what's generating this recession, along with the global rise in interest rates and the UK-specific problems from the mini-budget. So put all that together, and household incomes are taking a pasting. So real wages after adjusting for inflation are going to see a 20-year stagnation. We haven't seen that really since just after the Napoleonic era in the early 19th century. And household incomes are down, in the OBR's forecast, down 7% over the next two years. And that's not something we've seen in 60 years of national accounting. So the overall outlook for households is terrible. It's going to be nasty. People are going to feel it both in their wallets and some people will lose their jobs. So the backdrop to all of this is just a really unpleasant economic experience we all have to go through because we are just poorer than we hoped we would be. And the recovery thereafter is going to be quite slow And that's where the ongoing problems of Britain's poor productivity performance and sort of lacklustre economic performance is going to hit. So we don't have great sunlit uplands to look forward to. So unfortunately, that is the outlook. And then if the UK economy or UK as a whole is poorer, then we can't afford the public spending plans on the tax basis that we had before, so we have to cut spending and raise taxes. I'll stop there. Well, George Parker, welcome back to the pod after that very cheerful picture that Chris just gave us. The politics of this are obviously very difficult for Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, that this is not a Conservative budget at all. It raises taxes, it cuts spending, it's the opposite of the 2019 manifesto, it's the opposite of what Liz Truss in that mini-budget, which feels like a century ago, even though it was only a couple of weeks ago that was delivered. How has it gone down in Westminster that Jeremy Hunt did not make a secret that this is difficult and that it's, things are going to be difficult for the foreseeable future. And the reaction in the House of Commons, I was watching it remotely, you were in the chamber for it. It seemed to be Labour was being very raucous. The Conservative benches were muted, but they were not mutinous. That's true. I mean, it's very unusual, I think, for MPs to start mouthing off about a budget on the day itself. It usually takes a while to crystallise usually takes a while for people to digest some of the negative media coverage. And there was some very hostile coverage in the media the next day after... The front pages after, universally, including from uh, pro-Tory papers. Absolutely, absolutely coruscating. And that sort of will shape the way they, that MPs address things. But they know that, that this is their one shot at redemption. They can't afford to start to undermine this budget package straight away because, as you said, Seb, I mean, this is uh, only two months after the last budget and diametrically the opposite. I mean, what's the country make of a party which thinks two months ago the way to save the economy is to have £45 billion of unfunded tax cuts and then two months later comes up with exactly the opposite prescription? So obviously people are nervous. 
I think they'll be relieved and Conservative MPs were relieved that Jeremy Hunt delivered it in a competent and confident fashion, actually. I thought it was a strong performance. I thought the package was well delivered and well constructed. It was the opposite of the sort of swaggering, blasé attitude we saw from Kwasi Kwarteng and that budget where he stood there and was very flippant about the whole thing. Jeremy Hunt, it felt like every word was precise, careful and practiced. Absolutely. It was a, it was a very polished performance and I thought the package you know, was reasonably balanced, but as Chris has just described in painful and gory detail, the package itself is extremely uncomfortable for Conservative MPs. They obviously hate the fact that taxes are rising to the highest level since the Second World War. But the other thing I was picking up very strongly in the immediate aftermath of of the statement was the fact that it's ordinary middle-income voters, core Tory voters, who are going to be clobbered most by this. And I met one minister who said, your headline tomorrow should be ordinary voters hammered which uh, I think we did use as a headline. Thanks very much. That is a real Achilles heel of this budget as far as the politics are concerned. And you saw that being picked on by the Daily Mail in particular, the Bible of Middle Britain, saying that, you know, the Middle Britain's hardworking strivers who are being clobbered by this. Now, let's start on picking some of the measures in this, because there was actually an awful lot in it, Chris, certainly much more comprehensive than the mini-budget under Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. So many of the tax rises, which, again, have been tread well in advance in terms of personal allowances being frozen, all that is coming in the longer term, that there's not a huge amount of that coming immediately. Obviously, the people being in the top rate of tax, that has been lowered, so 125,000 people are being dragged into that top bracket. But again, there'll be some very small violins in that sense. And I think one theme of the tax rises was very much focused on the richest in society because under the mini-budget, it was, you know, the banker's bonus cap, getting rid of the 45p top rate, and the politics of that were fundamentally awful, really. Whereas now, Jeremy Hunt seems to have gone out of his way to go in the opposite direction to say to the ordinary voters that George was talking about, the riches are bearing the biggest burden. So take us through the tax elements. The messaging, as George said, is, is in diametrically opposite to what happened two months ago. And the messaging is that the rich and people with the broadest shoulders are paying most, and the tax increases, do they build through the next five years? So it's not entirely true to say nothing's happening immediately, because there's £7 billion being raised from April next year. So a lot of that is coming from freezing national insurance thresholds, particularly for companies, but that ultimately goes into our wage packets. But it's all the freezes in income tax thresholds, anything in the tax system that is a number has basically been frozen until 2028. So as people's pay goes up, they will pay more of their pay in tax than they used to. And it's that rise in the average rate of tax, even though the tax rate stays the same, that people will feel. So they get a pay rise from their employer, but actually when they get a look at the bottom line, it doesn't go up as much as they thought because more is being taken in tax. Now, it's uncertain, I think, whether the reaction to that will be, oh, it's okay, I didn't see this tax rise happening, or people go, that's a very stealthy, underhand way of raising my taxes. And I think that's an open question of whether the public like it or they hate it because they think the government's not being straight with them when they are raising their taxes and they're pretending sort of not to. And then one of the other, of course, big taxes we've seen, George, is the windfall tax. And this is obviously an idea the Labour Party have been talking about for some time. We're going to talk about that later in the podcast. And again, the whole thing makes your head hurt in a way, actually, when you try and put your sense into where the Conservatives are going on this, to think that these diametrically opposed economic views are within the same party and were briefly in the same government as well is so bizarre. But the windfall tax essentially is going to try and take some of those excess profits resulting from the energy wholesale price rise that we, Chris was talking about earlier 
You can imagine that's quite popular, but will it work? I think it was unavoidable. And just going back, it wasn't just that this was something that was opposed by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng two months ago. If you remember, all the way back to the beginning of 2022, Rishi Sunak spent months saying he wasn't going to levy a windfall tax. It wasn't a conservative thing to do. It would hammer investment by the energy companies. And now here we have an announcement of what's it, £14 billion pounds next year. I mean, look, politically, it was unavoidable. And, you know, there is a windfall and somebody's got to pay. And surely, politically, it made absolute sense to do it. So, look, I mean, I think that was unavoidable. I think the banks will be breathing a sigh of relief that they weren't targeted for a windfall tax as well because they've been making a lot of money on rising interest rates and the money that's being held on, at the Bank of England on deposit. But in the end, you have to shield your voters as far as possible from the impact of tax rises and the energy companies were an obvious place to look. Well, let's hear from Richard Hughes of the OBR and he explained why the most difficult decisions in the statement were being pushed into the future. It's a budget which gives £100 billion away over the next two years to help households with their rising energy bills, helps to take about two and a half percentage points off off a historic peak in inflation, a 40-year high. But then over the medium term, to meet the chances objective of getting debt falling in five years' time, he then takes £40 billion out of borrowing through spending cuts and tax rises in order to meet his objective of getting debt falling uh, by the middle of the decade. Now, Chris, let's unpick two things that Richard Hughes mentioned there. First of all, the energy support package, because Liz Truss announced this very comprehensive package that was much bigger than many were expecting, and some put some of the blame on what happened with the market reaction to the mini-budget on that. Jeremy Hunt has begun to curtail that. What did he announce on that, and do you think he's made the right call? In lots of ways, Liz Truss didn't get much credit for it. An enormous amount of money she spent uh, on... Her team still feel very sore about that, actually. And the thing is, it's one of these things that politicians often find they don't get credit if they prevent something happening. It's because we're still paying more for our energy than we were a year ago, double the amount, roughly, households are, but we're not paying triple or quadruple, which is what would have happened if had they not done this. So this winter, energy bills are capped at whatever the level we as households are paying in October. That cap is going to rise to £3,000 on an average bill. It doesn't mean everyone will pay only 3000 It obviously depends on your use of electricity and gas. But for the typical household, it will rise to £3,000 for the year starting in April. And then after that, the assumption is that uh, energy price caps will disappear. We'll just pay the market price again after that. Although if gas prices rise through the roof, again in the next year. I'm sure they will revisit that. So we are going to be paying more. There's help for the most vulnerable through the benefit system. So it's the middle income households and richer households who will be hit with these increases in energy prices coming in April. But it's that middle income group who I think that's where my problems might lie. Because on this, George, you know, there was a lot of help put in there, obviously for pensioners, that core Tory vote, that the pension triple lock was maintained again in like a kite was flown that maybe it might not happen this year given inflation is running so high but to the surprise of no one that was maintained and then so for benefits being uprated as well so again quite a lot of spending there for those parts of society but you're sort of I hate to use sort of the David Cameron term of the strivers but that sort of or alarm clock Britain I think was the point just about managing just about Jesus. managing yeah. alarm yeah. clock yeah. Britain all those wonderful catchphrases we've had those are the people who are really going to get left out by what Jeremy Hunt announced That is the concern of many Tory MPs. And I think that we'll see that amplified in the coming weeks because these are the bedrock supporters of the Tory party. They're the swing voters who determine elections. And there's not an awful lot in the package for them. In fact, rather the opposite. They're going to be sucked into paying tax or into higher bands of tax by the freezing of the allowances and thresholds Chris was talking about. And in every other respect in their life, whether it's not getting full protection on energy bills or higher inflation in the shops, 
prospect of rising inflation and the prospect of their house prices falling as well, incidentally. All those things will combine to create a very, very grumpy electorate whose grumpiness will be compounded by the fact that they can't get to see a GP and all the other things we know about in the public services. So how you manage to convince those people come the next election when unemployment's set to double house prices coming down by 9%, disposal income's down by 7%, taxes are highest level since World War II. You have to convince those very grumpy people that an incoming Labour government will make things worse. That's the thing the Conservatives are going to, may struggle to do. Now, the second thing Richard Hughes talked about, Chris, was spending. And this is the trap, as it's been described, set by Jeremy Hunt here. So in this statement, he announced that capital spending would be frozen, that public spending will only rise by 1% in the next parliament. And so the most difficult decisions on cutting things back only comes after 2024, when we're expecting next election to be. Do you think that's ever going to happen? Because particularly in terms of public spending, which is real terms, cuts there, there's not a lot of places you can cut without having real damage, as George just hinted. There is this sense, which I think might reflect where we were in 1995, 96, and then up to 97, that many things in the British state and the public realm just aren't working in a good way. It feels like the sort of infrastructure in the edifice is beginning to crumble a little bit. And if you then come along and say you're going to then cut things in real terms, never mind if people are going to vote for that, that's going to make things even worse. Yeah, it's going to be a very difficult election for Labour. But I'm not sure the trap is as deep or as as difficult for Labour as some people on the the right think, because it's difficult for everyone. Because the Conservatives will have to answer, how are they going to make the health service better with these spending plans? And if the Conservatives say, well, they're not going to spend any more, the health service will have to do it through efficiencies, everyone will say, well, that's not, not realistic. So that question at the next election, how are you going to make public services of a standard that's acceptable to the British people without raising taxes is going to be a difficult question for all parties. Generally, I mean, I I think there is a trap, but I agree with Chris on this, that in the end, if the election is about the state of the public services, as indeed it was in 1997, then people will tend to think the Labour Party will 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 be better at doing... And I'm sure Labour won't say they are going to raise spending faster. They'll they'll do exactly what Tony Blair and Gordon Brown did. The overall envelope stays the same. They'll say, we are going to stick to the spending plans. And they probably would for the first couple of years until the services fell apart. And then they could say to the public, we have to spend more on this because you want us to, but you have to But I think the meta picture here, the thing that Conservative MPs are rightly worried about is that a cumulative picture emerges over the next two years of a country breaking down, whether it's the health service or not being able to get your driving licence renewed or the police not investigating your house burglary, or individual horror stories like the terrible story of the two-year-old boy who died after exposure to mould in in his flat. The whole idea of the public realm being in a state of crisis and nothing working is a real problem for a government which has been in power for 12 years. And I think the other thing that will happen in the election will be the old-fashioned Ronald Reagan to Jimmy Carter question, do you feel better off than five years ago? And the OBR said yesterday there'll be no growth in the UK economy between the end quarter of 2019, when the last election was, and the final quarter of 2024. So the answer will be no. Now, based on all this, there's basically no good news whatsoever for the Conservatives throughout this, particularly in this place in the electoral cycle. If we were here one year or two years ago, you might say, again, 
as Mr. McCorber would say, something might turn up, things might get a little bit better. But there's so little time left in this parliament, Chris, in terms of things to get better. And we know there has to be a general election by January 2025. And I think the result of this means it's almost certainly going to be later in 2024. I think pushing it to January 2025 might look a little bit desperate, but I think the autumn of that year is kind of this place you could imagine them landing. Is there any scenario you can see where things get into a better space? You know, maybe inflation does come down better. Maybe the situation in Ukraine begins to change and energy costs start to come down? Or really fundamentally, is it all just bad news, bad news, bad news going forward? No, there's a clear scenario where things get a lot better and it's the Ukraine war and energy prices come down. So something happens in the Ukraine war. Europe begins to buy more gas from Russia again because sanctions come off. And even though we know long term, we don't want to buy a lot of gas, we don't want to be beholden to Russia again as we have been. But that really brings down the wholesale price of gas. And so you have the opposite thing. So instead of the nation becoming poorer because one of the essentials we buy has got a lot more expensive, we become richer because one of the essentials we buy gets a lot cheaper. And that can happen quickly, but it would need to happen, I think, before the start of 2024 to really be felt by the public. And the public will also have quite a long memory. I totally agree with Chris that things were not going to be bombing along in, the, um, in 2024. But we get into this discussion about the 1992 election, don't we? Whether, whether you can rerun the 1992 election. Not and what that, was the core theme of the that? The core theme of that was not that the economy is going gangbusters far from it, but that the green shoots of recovery, as Norman Lamont put it, are yeah, not visible. Us because we've got, we've the got a plan. Shoots. Stick with the plan. It's delivering... Don't let Labour muck it up. That is the dream scenario for Rishi Sunak going into the 24 election. Now, finally, I just want to touch on how did we get here and who is to blame for this situation? Now, Jeremy Hunt was telling the BBC on Friday morning that a lot of it was all about international factors. Yes, because we've had a very exceptional situation. We've had a, a once-in-a-century pandemic. We've had the fuel price hikes caused by Vladimir Putin. Well, Conservatives win elections when they're trusted with the economy. And what you've seen today is a Conservative Chancellor outlining a very difficult path that gets us through this crisis. Now, Chris, obviously the Labour Party says this is all the Conservatives' fault, as you would expect them to do. Is there any truth on that? Is it about how they've managed the economy over the past 12 years and the decisions they've made? Is it about the international factors primarily? I think you take the short term, mostly international factors. Now that the sort of the UK moron premium of the UK specific factors have basically gone away. So the short term energy crisis on top of the COVID crisis, you cannot blame on the Conservatives. But the longer term performance of the economy, the very low productivity growth, the effects of Brexit on the economy, which are now becoming clear, all of that is the response to some extent, of this government, they'll find it more difficult to just say this is international factors when the UK is performing worse than other similar countries. Well, I just want to finish, George, on that Brexit point because I was at the G20 summit with Rishi Sunak in Bali this week where the Ukraine war was a very dominant topic. But at the press conference, the end of the summit, I actually asked Rishi Sunak, was there a Brexit element to this? And this is what he had to say. Well, I think when you're thinking about what the UK's economic situation is, I'd point you back to the comments and the statistics that I've made in my opening, com uh, my opening remarks. Two-thirds of the global economy or G20 members seeing inflation rates above 7% at the moment. The IMF thinks a third of the global economy either is or will be in recession. That, that is the global context. That's what's dominated the conversations that I've been having here. And, and we know why that is. It's the legacy of COVID and 
it's, uh, of course, what Putin is doing uh, that is driving up energy and, indeed, food prices. And if you talk to some of my colleagues from Africa and what they're grappling with, they're very cognizant of that. So that, that's the global economic context, and I think that is what's dominating what's happening. Um, you know, every country is going to have idiosyncratic things, but those are the overwhelming dominating factors. So, George, when you hear that, him talking about idiosyncrasies of different countries, that's maybe the nearest we'll get to an acknowledgement that the referendum in 2016 has added a drag on the UK's growth and has been many people involved in the Bank of England and on the Monetary Policy Committee saying this week, actually, Brexit has been an extra anchor on where we're at. Describing Brexit as an idiosyncrasy is an odd way to describe what is, after all, now the, the centrepiece of our economic and foreign policy. It's strange to describe it as an idiosyncrasy. Obviously, it would be foolish to say that the principal causes of the problems we're facing are related to COVID and related to the war in Ukraine and the inflationary spike that's happened. But, you know, the elephant in the room and a contributory factor to all this, without any shadow of a doubt, is Brexit. The OBR in its report talked about the first signs of a significant adverse effect on trade as a result of Brexit. Just have the anecdotal evidence of companies that try to do business with the European Union. You know... It's an additional problem. And it's an additional problem. We've discussed this many times before. I recommend, if you haven't seen already, the, the FT video on this subject, the Brexit effect, which has had nearly 5 million views now. It's a political elephant in the room. And in all of the discussions after the awesome statement, you could see the Labour Party desperately trying to avoid talking about Brexit, even though, you know, look at the, the economic outlook for, according to the forecast in 2023, for all European economies. The UK has by far the worst uh, outcome of any European country. And I think that's actually going to be a fascinating topic come the next election, because as you said, Labour MPs, half of them absolutely desperate to talk about Brexit and how you could adjust the trading relationship. The other half know that if they do, then that will give the Conservatives an open goal come the next election. So I don't think that question is going to be examined right now. But for now, Chris and George, thank you very much. Hunt's autumn statement may have not been the Conservative Party's finest cup of tea, but was there anything in it for the Labour Party to like? With plenty of tax rises to help stabilise the finances, some commentators noted it was the statement not dissimilar to the sort that the opposition might deliver. But Hunt did set plenty of electoral traps for Labour, particularly on the most difficult decisions on the public finances. Can the party dodge them come the next election due in 2024? Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, told the BBC that her priority instead would be trying to get more money from the richest in society. The point is that you could raise taxes in different ways. It doesn't all have to be through income tax. You could tax the banks more. You could tax the private equity bosses more. You could tax the non-doms more. You could tax the big energy giants more. And if you do that, you don't have to keep coming to ordinary working people and putting all of the burden on them. Well, Jim Picard, welcome back to the pod. So responding to these fiscal events is never easy for the opposition party. They don't have much time to consider, although so much of this particular statement was leaked in advance. I think Labour had a pretty good idea of what was coming. What did you make of it from a Labour perspective and of Rachel Reeves's response? So I think there's two elements to that question, really. The first is that there was actually a very open goal in terms of Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, being able to say everything's a total disaster, Inflation going through the roof, house prices set to fall, unemployment set to rise, cuts to public spending, taxes going up. In terms of things to criticise an incumbent government for, they were myriad. And what Labour has sought to do for quite a long time now is talk about how these people have been in government for 12 years 
Yeah, Boris Johnson is very good at reinventing the Tory party as something relatively fresh and new, a sort of Brexit party remade. What Labour's trying to do is complain about 12 years of conservative economic failure. The economic growth of the last decade or so has been much lower than the economic growth during the new Labour years, for, for whatever reason. And she's trying to make a point of that. In terms of specific policies that the Labour Party might criticise, that's a little bit harder because, yes, she's criticising the fiscal drag on income tax thresholds being frozen for years. But Labour had a huge point of differentiation a few months ago or at the start of the year when they were calling for a windfall tax on energy companies. But in the spring, Rishi Sunak, when he was chancellor, brought out a relatively small energy windfall tax. And yesterday, Jeremy Hunt brought out a windfall tax, not only on oil and gas, but also on electricity producers, which is actually bigger than the one envisaged by Labour. Well, Kaz Roberts, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I'd like to have you on. What did you make of the statement from a progressive perspective? Was there much or anything to like? I think there was. Jeremy Hunt was making a pitch for the centre ground. And in doing so, he did do some things that look quite a lot, as we've heard, like what a progressive government might do. So the examples I'm thinking of in particular are cutting the allowances for capital gains and dividend income tax, something which progressives, including ourselves, have argued for for a long time and also extending the windfall tax. At the same time, he was uprating benefits in line with inflation, which is something that lots of people have been asking for. So there was definitely some movement towards progressive goals. And I think he will have been thinking of those distributional charts that will all be coming out this morning. That being said, there are some serious gaps from a progressive perspective. Key among them is that obviously this was a budget that was partly about cuts. The big focus has been the kind of deep cuts that are scheduled for after 2025 now. But actually, he also didn't provide inflation-proof funding for all departments in the next couple of years. So there are going to be some real squeezes, including on public sector pay. And then the other element that I would say is that taxation point you just heard Rachel Reeves talking about. Because while they made kind of steps in a direction towards wealth tax, the bulk of this really was about taxes that are going to hit middle earners and then high earners as well. And I think they did leave some tax options on the table that would have been fairer. So, for example, they could have gone the full way and equalised rates of tax on income from work and income from wealth. That would have raised approximately $17 So I think there were tax options that he left on the table that would have been more progressive. Now, the windfall tax is a fascinating one because we've actually already been here before and when Rishi Sunak was Chancellor himself, he announced a, a, a form of a windfall tax, which is now being extended, as Jim was just saying. But it does create this problem for Labour that they come up with these ideas, they campaign on them and put it forefront of their fiscal plans, and then Tories just take them. And on the windfall tax, you know, it has got that, at least that veneer of fairness to it that a lot of people will see the reports about Shell's excess profits, lots of headlines get shared on social media about billions and billions of energy company profits. So when when the Tories are doing that, the sort of the measures that you talk about that still could be done, it might be a bit difficult to make it connect with a lot of kind of regular voters who are only going to get a broad sense of what was announced. In many ways, it's a win for Labour that the Conservatives have done the windfall tax extension. It does mean that, as you say, they've lost a key dividing line that they had, and they will now need to work out how they can set out more policies that show who they're for and how they're different to the Conservative Party without 
giving away all of the things that they plan to pull out for a general election. So I think that does leave them with a bit of a bind there. Now, Jim, let's talk about what Rachel was saying at the top about what she would like to do as an alternative. So one thing we've heard a lot from the opposition party is tackling non-DOM tax status. And of course, this has an element of targeting Rishi Sunak personally. When it was revealed that his wife, Akshata Murthy, held non-DOM status, she no longer has that and will pay full UK tax on her earnings. But is that actually going to do anything? Or is it just a bit of a magic money tree, a bit of a fantasy thing you can prod to say, and it sounds good by targeting the super wealthy, but in reality, it's not going to help make the finances add a better... Yeah, I mean, if we could come back to the non-DOM point, I think the question of how does Labour differentiate itself from the ruling Conservatives is, is a very big question. When they're 20 points ahead in the polls, I think the public are going to be increasingly asking, what would you guys do instead? And if you look at the balance in this fiscal time we saw yesterday between tax rises and spending cuts, it was basically 50-50. And that's very different to what George Osborne did a decade ago when he did austerity mark one, where it was about 80% spending cuts, 20% tax rises. You have to presume that a Labour government, if it got in, would tilt the balance the other way. You've got to presume that the balance between tax rises and spending cuts would be more towards the former, whatever that balance would be. But they're so frightened of Tory newspapers and, and the Tory party accusing them of planning some tax bombshell that they're going to be very, very cagey about that. So what are the distinct policies that are different? So Labour would do a tax rate on private equity, and that only raises a few hundred million pounds. They would perhaps reintroduce the cap on bankers' bonuses, which isn't a fiscal tax raiser, but it has totemic significance. The one massive thing that they would do is that they would borrow £28 billion a year for capital investment in a kind of green new deal. The last couple of policies that differentiate them, they would hit private schools with VAT. And yes, non-DOMs, they would ban non-DOMs or they would end non-DOM status. It would raise about £3 billion a year. There have been rumours that the Tories were looking at doing this, but that's not something they did this week. It's a sort of interesting one. When I had lunch with the FT with Angela Rayner a couple of weeks ago, she was saying, look, the thing about Sunak is that we don't envy him as wealth. It's great that he's a successful business person. He's made this money. They're very worried about looking anti-aspiration and anti-people making money for themselves. But the point she made is when you're imposing tax rises on everyone else, having a wife with non-dom status is not a great look. And Seb, you just said that she uh, abandoned her non-DOM status. I think the truth is that although she started paying UK tax on her worldwide earnings, she's still technically a non-DOM. So that non-DOM issue isn't going to go away. Now, Karis, I want to talk about what's been described as the trap for Labour that's been set here, that when we look at some of the toughest measures within the autumn statement, they're very handily coming after 2024, which is the time we're all expecting the next general election, maybe in the spring or the autumn of that year. Now, in that situation, the election campaign, you can always go and say the Conservatives saying we have a plan to fix the fiscal black hole. We know how we're going to get out of it. Labour, what are you going to do? And as Jim just said, they've got this big amount of money they want to borrow to invest in infrastructure as part of the Green New Deal. How does Labour navigate its way out of that? And is it actually a trap? I think it is a trap. I think it's quite deliberate to push the bulk of spending cuts towards the end of the period, because it conveniently falls after a general election. And I think the idea is that it will force Labour to have to say, we will raise taxes in order to pay for our programme. Is it actually a trap in reality? 
I would dispute that. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty going on in those forecasts. Small changes, for example, in the growth rate, which of course the government can influence through good policy, one would hope, or indeed borrowing costs makes a massive difference to how much would need to be consolidated even under the existing fiscal rules. On top of that, the fiscal rules can be changed. At the moment, it's a rolling target. So it's not actually that in five years time, we will definitely have to fill the gap that's been set out and um, that will roll on. And the Labour Party could, of course, select different fiscal rules as we see chancellors pick their own. So that it's not a dead certainty that Labour will have to agree to the consolidation that has been talked about this week. Instead, I think they will be looking at the economic conditions closer to the time. What really matters right now is actually conservative policy and what they're doing to make sure the economy is back on track and that the public finances as a result, because of course we're looking at debt to GDP and so on, are also back on track. And we got a sense from Rachel Reeves about how she's going to play the politics of the next two years in terms of the economy when she was speaking to the House of Commons and about how she said the autumn statement is benefiting the richest. Time and time again, we've seen how quick the Conservatives are to raise taxes on working people. Now, the Chancellor has even compared himself to Scrooge. He's asking working people to take the hit with less money in their pockets in the run-up to Christmas, but also for years to come. But if you're a banker, a non-dom, or a private equity manager, don't worry. Scrooge hasn't cancelled your Christmas. Jim, it's certainly fair to say Rachel Reeves has a very good use of analogies. I remember during a previous budget where she likened it to a sort of private equity manager on a private jet drinking champagne and how you would feel quite a lot better off. But you can feel how they're going to try and play this in terms of the politics. But when is there going to be more detail from Labour on what their alternative is? As Karis said, there's still a lot of uncertainty about the public finances. But on these big questions about tax and investment in public services, we still have not got that much of an idea of what a Labour government would do. And I think in the next 12 to 18 months, the pressure is just going to gradually increase on them to say, yes, but what's your alternative? What they think for now is that they can say broad statements such as we would try and further equalise the tax treatment of money that derives from shared dividends or from being a landlord will try and narrow the gap between those lower levels of taxation than income tax paid on people's earnings. I don't think they want to be too specific because as soon as you get too specific, then you see all sorts of headlines condemning you. It's quite clear where the direction of travel is. It's not entirely clear to me that you get a political benefit from being too explicit about it. You know, there's no rule that says an opposition party has to say precisely where capital gains tax would be or precisely where the 45p threshold might be. One difficulty they might have is that this new chancellor is prepared to demonstrate that he wants to tax high earners perhaps more than they previously were being taxed. They're lowering the threshold of 45p rate from 150 to about 125 grand, the opposite of what Kwasi Kwarteng wants to do. And therefore, that ground is it's there for Labour to take it if it feels confident enough. But if the problem with boasting about taxing the rich or high earners is always that even people on not massive incomes do like the idea that one day they might earn a huge amount or their kids might earn a huge amount. And attacking aspirations is always, it's always a slightly tricky one for the party, isn't it? 
And Karis, finally, last words to you. What do you think Labour, how, when should it set out its alternative? Or as Jim says, should they just keep focusing on their critique and then leave it all for a slightly later date? They've been keeping their powder dry and had a critique that's very much based on competence and the fact that the government has not managed to deliver growth. And indeed, this parliament is looking absolutely terrible for living standards. And I think that's going to really play in their favour, regardless of the choices that Hunt makes, quite frankly, over the coming years. Um, And so I think the task for them will be over this next period before the general election to set out how they would actually deliver growth that is different. So not just on a competence point, but how would that economic model actually be different to one of the Conservatives? And what would that mean for living standards? How would they fix this problem? Well, Jim and Karis, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also do like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. And until next week, thank you very much as always for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.